Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're starting a new chapter where we will continue to examine the new economic policy, but this time exploring different angles of how it affected society. Chapter 7. The New Economic Policy, Society and Culture The 1920s was a period characterized by a paradoxical combination of anxiety and hope. Footnote 1. The power of the party state expanded, yet the new rulers became uncomfortably aware of the limits of their power, and anxious about the resurgence of bourgeois forces they had assumed had been vanquished by the revolution. At the same time, NEP was the period when the utopian dimension of revolution flourished even as efforts to achieve the most limited practical reforms were crippled by lack of finance and personnel. It witnessed radical experimentation in the arts and culture, and, to some extent, in daily life. Communists looked impatiently to the future, yet were acutely aware of how trammeled they were by the structural and cultural legacy of the past. For society at large, the period brought immense relief after the appalling suffering of the Civil War, and hopes were high that the Soviet population could look forward to a period of prosperity and stability. Limited social and economic improvement was achieved, but life remained tough for the majority, and the limits placed on liberty by the still weak but growing state were palpable. Relative to the Civil War and the revolution from above, which was to come in 1928-29, to this was a period of relative order and civic advance, one that in some ways harked back to the period of 1905-14. to A civil society re-emerged, yet state intervention to limit and control its development steadily increased. Social order restored. If Russia in the last decades of Tsarism was moving away from an estate society towards a class society, the revolution halted that process by destroying the old elites. In the emerging socialist society, class remained a fragile structure. Its material underpinnings of ownership of means of production, the employment of wage labor, or exercise of managerial authority weakly articulated. Social relations were fluid, with plenty of opportunities for upward mobility which ranged from leaving one's village, to getting an education, to getting a factory job, to joining the Komsomol, the communist organization for young people between the age of 14 and 23, or to using one's skills and political commitment to acquire a position in the burgeoning institutions of the party state. With the onset of NEP, social inequality began to increase. As early as March 1922, Evgeny Preobrazensky warned, quote, The leveling of class contradictions in our country has come to a halt. End quote. Compared with capitalist societies, of course, NEP's society's nascent class relations were still remarkably equal. Yet social differentiations were complex, certainly more so than official categories allowed. 
leaving to one side the beginnings of a nomenclatura elite discussed in the previous chapter, there were processes of class formation at work over which the state had relatively little control, caused not only by the resurgence of the market, but also by the seemingly unstoppable expansion of bureaucracy. It was in an effort to control such forces that Bolsheviks sought to impose their own design upon the new social order by ascribing rights and duties to social groups on the basis of their place in the new political and juridical order. In imposing its own classification on society, it acted rather as Peter the Great had done in 1722 when he imposed on the hereditary nobility a table of ranks, or as the Tsarist state had done a century later by ratifying the system of social estates, the system that had been abolished on the 11th of November 1917. Footnote 2. In 1926, a detailed census was carried out across the newly created Soviet Union which produced a vast amount of information about the social and ethnic structure of the population. It emerged that the population stood at 147 million, 5.5% higher than in 1914, although later statisticians would estimate that the population might have been a million lower than this because of movement of people during the week it took to carry out the census. The rise in population despite the demographic catastrophe of the Civil War, was remarkable and was almost entirely due to the rapid recovery of the rural population, which was estimated to comprise 82% of the inhabitants of the Soviet Union. Footnote 3. If one defines urban less generously than the census takers, the rural percentage was even higher than this. However, it is noteworthy that about 5.7% of the population classed as rural was engaged in occupations other than farming, such as artisanal production, transportation, construction, or employment in Soviet cooperative educational or other public institutions. The census provided information on such matters as the number of peasant families that employed labour and the number that relied exclusively on the labour of family members. But it could not provide the Stalin leadership, at least directly, with the information it really wanted, which was about the extent to which class differentiation was taking place in the countryside. The leadership was convinced that bourgeois forces were in the ascendant and it yearned to measure and to limit that process. The agrarian revolution had increased the amount of land at the disposal of peasants and brought about its more equitable distribution. The number of peasant households rose sharply from 18.7 million in 1914 to about 24 million in 1927 as sons split from the parental household, generally at the insistence of their wives. However, there was no reduction in the size of the average household plot. Indeed, in European Russia, minus the autonomous republics, it increased in area from 10.08 hectares before the revolution to 13.23 in 1927. Footnote 4. 
the reality was that the average household sat squarely in the middle peasant category, as a family working mainly for its own subsistence and relying on its own labour. The so-called neo-populist school of A.V. Chayanov, which was well represented in the Commissariat of Agriculture, doubted that social differentiation was taking place, arguing that peasant households were subject to cyclical mobility rather than to long-term stratification. Wealthy households, they argued, were those in which the ratio of workers to consumers was high. When the sons split from the parental household, their wealth declined. Footnote 5. Marxists, on the contrary, produced studies that purported to show that NEP was allowing kulaks to prosper at the expense of the poor. A large-scale survey of 1927 classified households according to the value of their means of production, and purported to show that 26% of households were poor, that 57% belonged to the middle peasantry, 14% to the upper middle, and 3.2% to the kulaks. Footnote 6. Yet, all these categories were hard to define, none more so than that of kulak. There was neither popular nor academic unanimity on how kulak households should be defined. Traditionally, kulaks were associated with money lending or with those whose wealth derived primarily from trade, such as the sale of liquor. But kulaks could also be wealthy farmers, especially if they hired labour, hired out heavy machinery or draft animals, or produced mainly for the market. In addition, the statistics produced could be interpreted in different ways. If one measured the data on a per capita basis, for example, the degree of social differentiation within the peasantry was less than if one measured it by household. Moreover, whereas sown area per capita was distributed fairly equally, per capita holding of livestock, rented land, and hired labour was less equally distributed, and ownership of machinery was concentrated very unequally. Finally, such data did not take full account of off-farm earnings from trade, handicrafts, or wage work. Footnote 7. At the other extreme of village society, farm labourers were rather easier to count, since they were defined as those who worked continuously for more than four months each year for wages. In 1927, there were 2.3 million labourers, although it is noteworthy that 1.5 million of these worked for individual peasant households, something that was legal if able-bodied members of a household were working but unable to cope with all the tasks of farming. Footnote 8. Because of the problems of definition and statistical interpretation, historians continue to argue about whether social differentiation was actually taking place in the countryside. It is probably fair to say that the Bolsheviks were almost certainly wrong to believe that NEP was increasing the trend for rich and poor to grow at the expense of the middle peasants, if only because it was in operation for too short a time. However, historians influenced by the neo-populist school 
also probably underestimate the extent of divisions within village society. Though they are right to dispute the idea that a trend towards greater division was underway. If class, in the sense of enduring structured relations of inequality of wealth and power, was still a tenuous entity in NEP society, class as a discourse became ever more influential. Distinctions between rich, middle, and poor peasants had always been recognized in village society. But now, such distinctions took on a heightened significance, since they were used by the regime as a basis for granting tax exemptions, withdrawing voting rights, or encouraging poor peasants to form separate organizations, from 1926. Indeed, one is struck by the extent to which peasants themselves used the language of class, though whether as a means of self-protection, of legitimizing complaints, or as a convenient way to explain away problems, by blaming them on priests or kulaks, for example, is uncertain. Typical was the schoolchild who wrote of her village, quote, We still have some Borzoi, who squeeze the inhabitants, giving them goods on credit so that they cost two to three times what they cost in the cooperative. We have a lot of them, seven in all. They've been deprived of the vote at the village gathering because they elect one another and support one another. End quote. Footnote 9. At the same time, peasant perceptions of village society continued to be at odds with those of officialdom. Poor peasants, the synosure of party leaders, were often regarded as idlers and spongers by their fellow villagers, while kulaks might be praised for their industriousness, on the one hand, or castigated as commune eaters and parasites on the mirror village gathering. If the regime was alarmed by the increase in influence of kulaks, it was just as exercised by the revival of bourgeois elements in the towns. Footnote 10. Much public concern centered on the nepmen, that is, the traders, manufacturers, and suppliers who seized the new opportunities offered by NEP to engage in private enterprise. Probably the biggest group of the three million traders and middlemen were those involved in manufacture and sale of handicrafts in the countryside. But it was those who traded or ran small businesses in the towns who came in for fiercest criticism. This was because many made substantial fortunes, and, if literary representations are to be believed, flaunted their newfound wealth by dining on caviar and champagne, hiring servants, buying houses, dressing in suits, silk dresses, or expensive fur coats. These were the nouveau riche, and there was little overlap between them and the pre-revolutionary merchant estate, except among an elite of big wholesalers. For ordinary folk who struggled to feed and clothe their families, NEP men provided a target for traditional hatred of speculators. Popular antipathy was captured in and reinforced by the merciless caricatures of NEP men in magazines, cartoons, films, posters, and schools as flashy, ignorant upstarts, swindlers, and Philistines. So far as party leaders were concerned, 
they existed on sufferance, necessary to revive the devastated economy, yet seen as an alien force liable to pollute the social body. In an effort to master the situation of uncertainty, one discursive strategy of the Bolsheviks was to identify and separate exploiters from toilers. Toilers was more of a populist than a Marxist category since it blurred the distinction between the industrial proletariat and the petty bourgeois mass of peasants, but it was politically useful. Toilers were workers, most peasants, and, though they were seldom referred to, the rising number of white-collar employees. Exploiters were kulaks, businessmen, rentiers, with spetsy, technical intelligentsia, and the free professions trending towards the latter. Footnote 11. Those deemed exploiters were deprived of the vote and barred from joining the Komsomol or the party. They were also penalized in terms of taxation and access to higher education and to housing. Discrimination intensified from 1926. In that year, there were 1.04 million people deprived of the vote, and by 1929 it had risen to 3.7 million. In 1926, 43.3% of the disenfranchised were traders and middlemen. 15.2% were clergy and monks, 13.8% were rentiers, and 9% were those who had served as officers or police under the old regime. Among rural dwellers, the proportion of the disenfranchised rose from 1.4% in 1924 to 3.5% in 1929. Footnote 12. After 1928, the disenfranchised could no longer claim rations, and from the same year, when military service was made compulsory for all male toilers aged 19 to 40, exploiters were no longer trusted to defend the motherland, and were required instead to enroll in the Home Guard and pay a large exemption tax. Compulsory military service thus defined citizenship in the socialist state, not only in gendered but also in class terms. In practice, discriminatory class labels were applied arbitrarily. Local Soviets disenfranchised middle and even poor peasants for hiring nurses or workers during harvest time, on the grounds that this rendered them exploiters. Similarly, membership of a religious sect or of an orthodox parish council might lead to being labelled a kulak, or in later Stalinist parlance, a kulak hanger-on, podkulachnik. Significantly, by the end of the 1920s, the bulk of those deprived of voting rights were not former people from aristocratic or bourgeois backgrounds, or former white officers, or even priests, but those who had been forced by unemployment and economic necessity to dabble in trade. Those who appealed against the loss of rights invariably made the point that they were workers and that any lapse into non-toiling activity, that is, trade, had been due to pressure of circumstances. Quote, I took up trade not for profit, but to support my family. End quote. Footnote 13. 
this spontaneous use of the term non-toiling activity suggests the official language of class battened on to deeper peasant conceptions of what was productive labour and what made one a useful member of society. Moreover, the appeals against disenfranchisement attest to the regime's having a certain legitimacy, since even those who complained of being unjustly treated appear to have believed that this was in principle a legitimate means of weeding out those who had become rich at the people's expense. Bolshevik ideology was thus more than an imposed illusion, despite the many contradictions between it and the reality experienced by ordinary Soviet citizens. To some extent, it proved able to engage with the needs and aspirations of ordinary people, to reinflect them in its own idiom and feed them back in ways that rendered the ideology plausible, even attractive for some. It provided a basis on which members of a very fluid society could fashion a public identity and find motivations for social action. Designing a Welfare State in addition to categorizing its population, the Soviet state sought to refashion it through education, healthcare, housing, urban planning, and social work. In its commitment to improve the welfare of the people, it may be seen as an authoritarian variant of the welfare states that were emerging throughout Europe in this period, where governments massively expanded their remit, mobilizing new forms of knowledge and surveillance, new technologies of control, new means of communication to foster a national improvement of the social body. Footnote 14. Healthcare was an area where the Bolshevik record in the 1920s was impressive, given the overwhelming poverty of society and the crippling restraints on resources. Footnote 15. The war and civil war had brought about a catastrophic deterioration in popular health, evinced by the fact that the average height of male conscripts to the army fell from 169.5 centimeters in 1908 to 166.5 centimeters in 1924, while the average weight fell from 66.5 kilos to 60.5 kilos. From a dismal nadir, however, the health of the population improved during the 1920s to a point where it was superior to the average for 1911-13. to 13. In those years, for example, there were 28.6 deaths per 1,000 of the population, a figure that fell to 21 by 1927. Footnote 16. That said, the financing of healthcare remained under intense strain, and there was a good deal of variation in the level and quality of health provision, above all between town and countryside. Only workers qualified for free healthcare, and the introduction of charges for services discouraged peasants from using the limited facilities available, since Zemstvo medicine had been free. Yet even in the countryside per capita, Health expenditure on uninsured persons rose from a paltry 69 kopecks in 1924-25 to 1.05 rubles in 1926-27, which still compared unfavorably with 4.41 to 6.26 rubles for townspeople. The ratio of doctors to population 
rose from 1 to 6,900 in 1913 to 1 in 2,590 in 1926, a big improvement, but at the latter date, there was still only one doctor for every 18,900 people in the countryside. Footnote 17. The principal reason was the unwillingness of doctors to practice in the countryside because of low pay and poor working conditions. Furthermore, by the late 1920s, a large proportion of medical students were women, many of whom were bound to the city by family ties. The result was that paramedics, many of them trained in the army, remained crucial to rural medical services, even though the policy of the health commissariat was to phase them out. Initially, doctors were hostile to the Bolshevik regime, objecting to its elimination of their institutional autonomy in the Zemstvos and professional societies. But they quickly adapted to the creation of a health commissariat in July 1918, and a promise of free, accessible healthcare for all. The commissariat upheld the technical expertise of doctors, and resisted calls from the Medical Sanitary Workers' Union to equalize the status of physicians' assistants and nurses with that of doctors, and allow the trade unions to administer health facilities. Central to the policy of the Health Commissariat was a program of preventative medicine and of sanitary and other measures to alleviate disease and improve living conditions. Through a program of dispensarization, aimed at screening targeted sections of the population for diseases such as tuberculosis, syphilis, or trachoma, local clinics and workplace units implemented preventative measures, such as obligatory vaccination against smallpox, and carried out health education. Sanitary enlightenment propaganda was systematically developed to raise awareness about disease and public health, with campaigns in the Red Army to quote, help the country with a toothbrush, and help the country by washing in cold water, end quote. Sanitary enlightenment units were established, which conducted lectures in factories and schools, displayed posters in villages, and staged plays, lantern shows, and exhibitions, all to convey the message that making every aspect of one's life healthy was a sign of consciousness. See figure 7.1. Despite prohibition of alcohol in 1914, illegal distilling of alcohol was rife, leading not only to the social problems associated with drunkenness, but also to a reduction in grain supply to the cities. Footnote 18. In 1922-23, a campaign was launched against illegal distilling, which led to a sharp rise in convictions. At the same time, the fiscal pressure on the government caused it gradually to weaken the policy of prohibition, starting with the sale of wine, albeit not without provoking intense argument in the party leadership. By August 1925, prohibition had been lifted, and the state's monopoly on the sale of vodka at pre-war strength fully restored. At the 14th Party Congress in December, Stalin noting, en passant, that one cannot, quote, build socialism in white gloves, end quote, argued that the reinstatement of the state monopoly was the only way to prevent 
quote, slavery to Western European capitalists, end quote. The addition of a tax on vodka, however, further encouraged illegal brewing, and this was almost certainly a factor behind the grain crisis of 1928. In October of that year, a nationwide campaign against drunkenness was launched in which schoolchildren in particular were mobilized. Quote, instead of vodka, buy us school books. End quote. Another dimension of the drive to enhance the productive and reproductive power of the new socialist society lay in the official promotion of sport, something that had no parallel under the Ancien Régime. Footnote 19. By 1929, 759,000 were registered as sports club members, still only 0.5% of the population. Trade unions and the Komsomol were given responsibility for promoting team sports such as soccer and basketball, as well as athletics, speed skating, boxing, wrestling, and fencing. There was also working-class interest in spectator sports, although this was not especially encouraged by government. Footnote 20. Some activists opposed competitive sports in favor of recreation and all-round fitness for the masses. Quote, it is necessary to be vigilant that competition does not spoil camaraderie relations, does not develop in the victors bourgeois feelings of pride, superiority, self-regard, or envy in the defeated. End quote. Footnote 21. Social hygienists, an influential group who approached disease primarily as a social rather than a biological phenomenon, objected to games that were potentially injurious to health, such as weightlifting, boxing, and gymnastics, preferring sports that were rational and collective in nature. The supporters of Prolet Kult, discussed in the section Cultural Revolution below, rejected bourgeois sports in their entirety, favoring labor gymnastics, mass displays, and pageants, such as that which was held in 1924 on Sparrow Hills in Moscow, when 6,000 staged a pageant in which British imperialists were thrown out of India. Following party intervention in 1925, the emphasis was increasingly on sport as a means of promoting health and fitness, clean living, collectivism, social progress, and military training. The Bolshevik record in education has come under more critical scrutiny than that in health, partly because some historians believe the radical experimentalism that characterized it was impractical and merely made a desperate situation worse. The new regime was committed to primary and secondary education for all and free of cost. But in 1921, school fees were introduced. In 1927, they were abolished for primary education since they were discouraging peasants from sending their children to school. Footnote 22. The school system was co-educational and integrated. The church was deprived of any role in education, and entrance examinations, grading, homework, and corporal punishment were all abolished. Education was to embody popular initiative through educational councils, 
elected at township, county, and provincial level. Building on the progressive educational theories influential in late imperial Russia, Anatoly Lunacharsky, the Commissar of Enlightenment, together with Krupskaya, promoted polytechnicism, the idea of an all-around education without vocational specialization, and the unified labor school, where pupils took part in vocational training as a way of familiarizing them with production. The complex method dispensed with traditional subjects in favor of the pupils' independent, activity-centered learning on themes to do with nature, labor, and society. Footnote 23. Children were to be taught proletarian, collectivist, and materialist values, and to learn the skills and dispositions needed to transform a backward economy. In reality, lack of resources meant that many initiatives, such as the Unified Labour School, barely got off the ground. Footnote 24. Experimentalism in education was by no means popular. Given that the level of educational achievement was still so low, the Komsomol and the trade unions began to demand more vocational training and greater specialization within the school system. The Commissariat of Education resisted these demands, but from 1926 it took steps towards reinstating a more traditional curriculum, while preserving the principle of polytechnicism. This failed to silence the critics, however, and in 1929, at the height of the Cultural Revolution, Lunacharsky was removed and the Central Committee demanded that the Commissariat be purged of, quote, alien elements who distort the proletarian class line, end quote. Relations between the government and teachers got off to a shaky start, after the latter went on strike. The Congress of the Teachers' Union, dominated by Mensheviks and SRs, refused in June 1918 to cooperate with authorities, quote, in whose activities there are neither creative ideas and principles nor a democratic basis for school education. End quote. During the Civil War, teachers struggled on with pitiful salaries, in derelict buildings, and with few textbooks and materials, while the government battled to provide school children with one square meal a day. Many veteran teachers were conscripted, leaving the profession overwhelmingly female and with a low average level of training and experience. Teachers were generally hostile to principles of child-centered education, and many continued to teach by means of dictation, memorization, homework, grades, and even corporal punishment. Footnote 25. As late as 1926, teachers earned less than half what they had earned in 1913. At the same time, the number of teachers grew by 77% between 1922 and 29, although standards of teaching remained low. As with education in the Tsarist era, historians differ in their assessment of the Bolshevik record. Statistics suggest progress and a fair assessment needs to take into account both the campaign to eliminate illiteracy, which is discussed in the section Cultural Revolution below, and the campaign to develop education in the non-Russian republics. The number of pupils in primary and secondary schools rose from 8.13 million in 1914-15 to 15, 
to 12.24 million in 1928. By 1926 to 27, 8 out of 10 children aged 8 to 11 were in school, compared with 49% in 1915. But the average time spent there was only 2.3 years for girls, who comprised only 36% of the enrollment in rural primary schools, and 2.5 years for boys. The numbers at junior secondary level, grades 5 to 7, increased two and a half times, but again townspeople were the major beneficiaries. Footnote 26. It was, however, the actual amount spent by government that is the crucial indicator, as it had been in the Tsarist era, and in 1924-25, only 4.4% of the central budget was spent on education, slightly less than the Tsarist government had spent by 1914. In some of the non-Russian republics, the percentage was higher, but in the RSFSR, more seems to have been spent on political enlightenment than on primary and secondary education. Footnote 27. In 1918, a revolutionary housing repartition had been proclaimed under the slogan Peace to the Hovels, War to the Palaces, whereby workers were moved from squalid cots and corners, where many had lived before the revolution, into the apartments of the well-to-do. Footnote 28. The quality of the housing stock deteriorated sharply, partly because there was no rental income to pay for upkeep, and partly because furniture and fittings were plundered to provide heating. Apartments of the so-called knobs, barsky, with their interconnecting rooms, high ceilings, huge stoves, kitchens, and lavatories, often proved quite unsuitable what were later known as communalki communal apartments, where each family had a separate room but shared kitchen, lavatory, and corridor. Kitchens with fuel-hungry stoves and inhabitants working different shifts made for much friction. As Woland says in Mikhail Bulgakov's novel Master and Margarita, quote, people are people, it's just the housing question that spoils them, end quote. With NEP housing repartition was abandoned and much property was returned to its former owners. Private housing construction was permitted and housing associations of various types were formed, often by tenants, to administer the accommodation. In 1922, rents were reinstated and began to rise once the currency was stabilized, although even by 1928-29, to 29, only 8.6% of the expenditure of working-class families went on rent. Footnote 29. Housing was a low priority in the state budget, but strenuous efforts were made to improve the living conditions of the working class. In Moscow, between 1918 and 1924, over half a million workers and their families were rehoused. Nationally, the percentage of worker families with more than one room rose from 28% in 1908 to 64% in 1922, while the percentage living in one room rose to 33%. Footnote 30. Yet the resumption of migration to the cities put intense pressure on housing, and this was probably the sphere of urban life where least improvement occurred. 
in Moscow, the amount of living space per person declined from 9.3 square meters in 1920 to 5.5 in 1927, and the average number of inhabitants per apartment grew from 5 to 9. Footnote 31. Housing was also an area in which the government policy increasingly favoured officials and experts. From January 1922, scientific workers were allowed an extra room, a privilege later extended to state and party officials, military and naval administrators, and to doctors and dentists in private practice. In 1926, the official allocation of living space per adult was 4.9 square meters for workers, 6.9 for employees, and 6.1 for others. Footnote 32. Anyone having in excess of these norms was likely to be asked to self-compress. Semoplotnitsia. That is, to make room for others. Only with the onset of the first five-year plan did the regime return to a policy of allocating housing on class principles. With NEP, the regime abandoned its grandiose scheme to distribute goods and services through a comprehensive system of rationing. The rapidity with which inequalities in consumption took hold surprised everyone. The hero of Andrei Platonov's novel, Chevenger, returns home in 1921. Quote, At first he thought that the whites were in town. At the station they were selling grey bread rolls at the buffet without ration cards and without any queue. A concise and crudely written sign declared, Everything for sale to all citizens. Pre-war bread, pre-war fish, fresh meat, our own pickles. End quote. Footnote 33. If the easing of supplies was widely welcomed, the fact that goods were only available to those with money rankled, especially with idealists. The Belgian anarchist-turned-Bolshevik, Victor Serge, exclaimed, quote, The sordid taint of money is visible on everything. The grocers have sumptuous displays, packed with Crimean fruits and Georgian wines, but a postman earns only about 50 rubles a month hordes of beggars and abandoned children, hordes of prostitutes. End quote. Footnote 34. From 1926, restrictions on speculation were stepped up, but cooperatives and state trusts were quite unable to substitute for private trade. By 1928, long lines stood for hours outside bakeries in Moscow and Leningrad, while for the mass of citizens, goods were increasingly in short supply. Deficitnier, in deficit, was one of the many new words that entered the Soviet lexicon. Members of the nomenklatura elite had access to special supplies. At the same time, citizens became versed in the arts of getting access to scarce commodities and services through the back door, by cultivating connections. According to a rhyming jingle by the artist Vladimir Mayakovsky, a citizen was ideally set up if they had a, quote, fiancé in an industrial trust, a godparent in GUM, Moscow's leading department store, and a brother in a commissariat. Nevesta v. Trest, cum v. Gum, brat v. Narkomat. End quote. Footnote 35. 
and that's going to do it for this week. Next week we'll be continuing on with this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find lots of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.